All right, and welcome to episode number 19 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for 2016. Big episode. We are here with my fine feathered friend, Mike. How's it going, Mike? Feathered friend? Who do you, who the hell do you think I am? Howard the Duck? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> that was an interesting... Trying to make uh, us more kid-friendly. <laughs> it's a typical Josh Cannon uh, uh, quote right there. Yep. And the, Let's bite into this cookie. Uh, anyway... Uh, the uh i'm doing okay uh, i have this math class as a thorn on my side right now i've been studying for and i uh, didn't i didn't do too well in the last test so i'm hoping i do better on this one and i gotta take it tomorrow and yeah i'm not looking forward to that but i will be seeing a nightmare on elm street uh in 35 millimeter with my aunt on friday so there's that so there's it's a little little uh, cool thing that's uh gonna happen this week um, that is cool. And I think it's a double feature now, too, with the second film. But I bought the ticket when it was only the first movie. So I'm going to give the theater a call and see, like, do I, is, do, would this ticket still work? Can I still see the double feature? Because I bought this before you changed things and made it a double feature. I hope I don't have to buy a ticket, the same ticket again. Um, I wouldn't think so, though. But, yeah, I've you know, uh, I've been super busy. Uh, I w- mainly with uh, my episode on my YouTube channel, the uh, episode on ghost shows. I hope you guys can all go and check that out. It's- yeah, please go check that out. I <laughs> uh, put a lot of hard work into that. And it shows. I'm not trying to e-beg right now or whatever, but it's uh, YouTube.com/slash Dancing with Ghosts. Uh, it's episode 18. Uh, I I worked on that thing for so long, and it has like 67 views. It's it's pathetic. I feel. Uh, I like it very much underperformed. So it's just in ha- time for Halloween. It's a great Halloween video. Everybody who's listening to this right now watches ghost shows or has watched a ghost show. Listen to my opinion on them, and it's very entertaining to boot. So there you go. So uh, Oh, also, um, you can like us on our uh, Facebook page. is facebook.com slash Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries. And you can support us on Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash Uncovering Unsolved Mysteries. Okay, so um, a lot of you are probably wondering what co- what's been going on with the Don Devereaux situation. Well, I'm sure you've seen from the title already. I gave that man a call yesterday, uh, Tuesday, and well, for people who aren't Patreons, it's anyway Tuesday. I gave him a call, and um, yeah, I had a conversation with Mr. Don Devereaux, and it was uh, it was it was surreal, man. I'm not even joking. It was so surreal talking to somebody you know for those you don't know real quickly don Devereux was a key interview in a bunch of segments on unsolved mysteries a lot of fans like the danny castellera story uh chuck morgan uh doug johnston the guy who was uh, accidentally murdered and the bullet was meant for don Devereux. and anyway he he kind of helped with the show and i learned that from the phone conversation with him um <clears throat> oftentimes don would be in, in the telecenter uh, while they were taking calls, and, and Devereaux was, you know, he shed light on, you know, kind of the telecenter and how there'd be FBI, an FBI agent on hand just in case they got a hot tip. And <clears throat> you guys are not going to want to miss this, uh, this, this interview. I, I recorded it. it it's, it's on here. It's later on. It's the last thing that's going to be going on. Uh, me and Mike wasn't involved because it was just a, a one-way conversation between me and Don. So you're going to hear that later on. And also, um, 
Oh, I don't know if anybody of you would be interested in this. I don't even know why I'm mentioning it, but... As I was on the phone with Mr. Devereaux, he asked me, well, have you talked to John Cosgrove and Terry Moyer yet? And I said, well, no, I would love to, though. And he's like, oh, well, let me give you their phone number. So a dream that I had many weeks or months ago, and I told Mike, my ultimate goal is to have John Cosgrove and Terry Moyer on the show, could bloody well become a possibility in the near future. Um... That's mind-blowing, folks. I never thought that I would get Don Devereaux, let alone the executive producers and creators of Unsolved Mysteries, on our freaking podcast. Now, I'm not promising it's going to happen, but there's a good possibility because he sent a copy of my letter to them at their office so they know who, who we are, they know about the podcast. Um, and yeah, so so we'll see how that goes, and we'll keep you guys in the loop. It's pretty exciting, don't you think, Mike? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I'm kind of a loss for words, really, because I never really would have thought that when I first came up with this idea, uh, which originally started out as a really shitty, t- like unraveling Unsolved Mysteries, bad title. I'm really glad I, I changed that to Uncovering, because Unraveling reminds me too much of a mummy. Yarn. And we're not really unwrapping a mummy here, now, are we? Um, but anyway... I would have never thought in a million years that when I started this, when I thought of this concept and brought Josh along, that it would have gotten to this point where I've even said it before in our last podcast, I'm, I'm still speechless that we were able to get Don Devereux. And if we get, you know, John Cosgrove and Terry Moyer, I mean, that's just, I, I don't know what to say. Like, I really don't have words. There are no words to describe, it, you know, how awesome that is it's it's an amazing thing it's an amazing feeling it it shows me and definitely josh that what we're doing is it seems like there might be some fate involved here it's like maybe that this is something that was supposed to happen everything happens for a reason and uh the pieces are starting to fall into place that really do make me feel that you know this is i don't even call it destiny or density you know if you want. Uh, but uh, I, I think there's definitely a reason for this show to exist, for this podcast to exist, and not only just to hopefully entertain you guys and gals who are listening, but um, to to really uncover Unsolved Mysteries, to do above and beyond what I honestly thought that, that I, w- I was going to do with this this podcast. So uh, yeah, you didn't, it's, it's you didn't amazing. Anticipate how obsessive compulsive I was going to be with. <laughs> uh, I just I, I dug my teeth into this thing, and I, I don't know. I I guess I have the kind of time to look into these things because I don't have a wife and kids and family. So yeah, I got time to I got time to look up people's addresses. Well, I knew and... you were very passionate about the show, and so am I. So I wanted to. I just thought it was worth a shot. And it just came to me when I asked him to, to join me. And I was actually kind of surprised he actually agreed to it because it's the first time I ever did any sort of collaboration with anyone other than my best friend. And, you know, I've done multiple collaborations with him and some of my other friends on YouTube, but I'd not, not someone that I had. I didn't really know him at all, no, really, not at, all. at this point. So I, I was just like, eh, fellow Unsolved Mysteries fan, I really liked the video he did. 
And so the rest is history. And now we could actually be talking to the, uh, the people who were involved for, you know, producing the show. And, and, you know, maybe we can get some more awareness about this show more than there already is. Maybe get, maybe get the attention of some people to maybe uh, contact John and Terry and maybe get a deal sprung to, you know, get the show streaming or something. I mean, even if it's just streaming on YouTube or something, I mean, that, that would be, I think people would definitely be all for that. Just to be able to watch the segments, uh, it, that, that would be huge for, for the fan base. After talking to Don, my suspicion is, and this is what I already kind of knew, it's not as though John and Terry do, which by the way, Terry Moyer is a female. I did not know that. I thought Terry, for some reason, I thought I thought it was uh, uh, two two guys, but no, Terry Moyer is a is a lovely. Female. I I knew she was always a, a female, <laughs> but you know. But it's not like they don't want the show on some kind of device or service they do um don was telling me that on on our conversation it, it's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo that you have to jump through as far as you know uh I did legal a, yeah i did a video on my youtube channel explaining why my because i put up an unsolved mysteries my top 10 favorite segments and it got taken down there are guilds that have to be paid. The people who take part in the reenactments, they have to get paid. There's union fees involved for all this stuff. There's there's a high cost of... If, if Unsolved Mysteries is going to be on Netflix or Hulu or something like that, they're going to need a sizable amount of money. And what my thoughts are is that these streaming companies are like, Unsolved Mysteries, what, that show from the 90s? No one, you know, no thanks, we'll pass. The, time and time again, the fan base gets underestimated, and, and I don't understand that. Yeah, and, um, maybe, maybe John and Terry should consider doing a, a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo campaign maybe get the fans themselves involved in uh, bringing the show back in, in, in some capacity. To any of our listeners, this is what your homework assignment is. Um, on our Facebook page, uh, I was going to make this a Patreon thing, but screw it. This is too big for uh, to just, you know, relegate to, you know, Patreon, because I want everyone to participate in what I'm about to ask. Um, just post any questions that you might want me to ask these guys or this guy and this girl um <laughs> anything that you ever want to know about the show any robert stack anecdotes because you know i have a few of my own that i'd like to ask but yeah just post any questions you have for these people because there's a good possibility i'll be talking to them soon i, I kind of wish i had posed the same question about don Devereux, but i feel like you'll be pretty satisfied with that interview i had with him i asked some pretty good questions um so yeah um and I, I think that, yeah, Indiegogo, uh, Kickstarter, something like that would be appropriate in this situation. But honestly, these these people are all getting up there in years. And, you know, Don was telling me from the phone interview that he doesn't even have a computer or a cell phone. Uh, he, he says he's a very old school journalist. He yeah. he still uses a typewriter, you know. So, I mean, that I'm sure, you know, John and Terry being executive producers, I'm sure they're more plugged in than, than that. But still, they may not know of these these resources so yeah i it's it's the whole paying the certain uh the, the streaming it i can see why that's a problem but doing people doing uh reviews of it i don't think that should be a problem because that's covered under fair use the the D, dmca laws 
actually cover what you did because it's transformative in nature. And you're reviewing, you're doing a review of some sorts. So um, I don't necessarily feel that they, they're necessarily, they, I mean, they may feel they're in the right and in some ways they probably are, but at the same time, legally, you should be able to uh, criticize the show or do videos about the show and have clips, but just in a transformative nature, not showing the entire episodes in their entirety or the entire segments without, you know, narration of your own or, or different, you know, edits and so on. Well, uh, I'm definitely not going to be uh, arguing uh that that with them when i talk oh i absolutely not i know i'm just i'm just saying you know they're probably in the right the, well, and, and they have their own reasons for it it was um, it was they they i think that people they these days and this is an issue i ran into with my ghost episode that i just released people these companies these days are so trigger happy with uh with that those dmcas and those those video takedowns especially unsolved mysteries they're very they're very nervous that people are out there trying to freeboot their content, trying to make ad revenue off of somebody else's work. And so they just, I think as an automatic thing now, which is wrong, but as an automatic thing, they just, they just assume every video that uses any kind of footage of theirs is violating some, some kind of copyright. And it, a lot of times, people just don't feel like fighting it. I didn't feel like fighting it. So, I mean, hell, I even got a copyright strike against my channel, and the video got taken down against, uh, you know, my will. I, I You know, because sometimes... See, the just... kind of thing that I would, I you know, I, I would like more of these content owners to do is just send, send these content creators messages and just say, hey, you know, we, we really... If it, you know we don't really like this content up on YouTube for free, you know, if you would, if you'd mind removing it, you know, and, and I've actually, I remember having a composer a long time ago when I was posting music still on one of my YouTube channels, a different channel that no longer exists because they got shut down by, by copyright. So I was posting soundtracks and things like that. And I remember posting the score for shocker, West Craven shocker. And the actual composer, he sent me a message and says, you know, I don't really like, you know, this stuff. Could you remove, you know, these tracks and so on? Otherwise, you know, I might have to do send you, you know, copyright strikes and whatever. And I sent him back a message and said, no, sure. Like, I, I, I had, there's no harm here. I, I wasn't trying to make any money. At this point, I wasn't making any money at that channel. So I, I, I was just doing it for fun, trying to share the music. And the guy was actually really nice about it. So, I mean, that's the kind of thing I honestly would like to see more from these, these content owners. Just ask the person kindly to remove the content instead of sending them a copyright strike. Bringing I the mean, damn gavel down on their channel and just, like, screwing over some small-time nobody like myself. Uh, yeah. But yeah. that's also YouTube's fault because YouTube has that structure set up and 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 it's a it's a it's a necessary evil yeah, in a lot is. of ways though because YouTube probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for these uh, policies that they have in place. But I think they should they they honestly could do a much better job reviewing these copyright claims. I've had claims, but what I've dealt with is I've dealt with getting strikes for videos that don't have any copyrighted material in them whatsoever. And that's and I've managed to get the strikes off by contacting the people who sent me the strikes and whatever. But 
it's still an example of how messed up YouTube's copyright system is. Yeah, it is ridiculous. All right, let's get to the meat and potatoes of this uh, episode here. Uh, we're starting off with a segment we wanted to cover last week, but we just didn't have the time to squeeze it in. This is uh, the DeCloud cult. Um, very, I love cults. They're so fascinating to me. Um, Mike picked this one, but I totally, like, I would have picked it eventually too. I just forgot about it, but this is a great Yeah, one. when I first, this is from season five, and when I first saw this, I was just totally taken aback by what I saw. Um religious cults in themselves are always like some bizarre thing that always it, it, it kind of a, it, it attracts my interest and this 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 uh, particular segment this particular story is no exception uh it begins shortly before midnight on september 17th 1992 where a young woman named julie cooper made a desperate call for help to tim santi a satellite repairman that she barely knew Santi and Julie set a time, which is around 1.15 in the morning. And just as they had planned, Julie was waiting at 1.15 a.m. with a trash bag full of belongings. She quickly got into the car and began to frantically tell Tim her story. Julie told Tim that for 16 years, she had been trapped in a religious cult called the DeCloud family. The family, nearly 30 men, and men women, and children, lived together in a commune far removed from the outside world. The DeCloud cult was reminiscent of the religious cult led by David Koresh. And this is a cult that apparently uh, earlier before 1992, around the same time, it, it, it was like this, it was like a compound that was like, it, it was like, it was crazy. Like they actually had the uh, Branch Davidian sect, right? Yeah, the Branch Davidian sect. Do you have extra info that you wrote down about that? Um, well, this is a, they were the ones, uh, I believe the Branch Davidians, they were the ones who, uh, bunkered themselves up inside that cottage out in Waco, Texas. And they, yeah. they, they, they pretty much militarized themselves. They were like this guerrilla kind of militia almost. And, um, they, they were, they had sh a shootout with the cops. Like the national guard had to come in. Like tank. Yeah. They the, brought a tank in there. Finally, they had to bring in a damn tank in the tank. Yeah. Um, now, there's a lot of speculation over this because uh, eventually the house burned to the ground with everybody in it. I think some kids, children uh, escaped and, and some women and children escaped, but a lot of the Branch Davidians ended up dying inside this fire. Now, uh, the government's position on it was the fire was set inside you know, but, like by themselves, like they did it. But then a lot of people said, no, the U.S. government did it you know to these people and for some weird there was some weird kind of thing in the 90s where there was a lot of people who were on the side of the branch davidians i'm sure it's more the uh kind of the right wingy kind of like gun rights people like these people weren't doing anything they weren't violating any laws why is the government going in there and messing with them and all that and it's like well it, it's a cult and you know there were there was a lot of laws being broken as far as like human like not human trafficking, but like human Im uh, imprisonment, I guess, against their will. And I'm sure there was rape going on and uh, non-consensual sex and stuff like that. But yeah, this DeCloud thing was was pretty reminiscent of that. There was a lot of these kind of little smallish cults going around in the 90s that, that were of this ilk. Uh, it, yeah, there it, was uh, the David's cult, uh, the Branch Davidians, is one of 2,000 cults of the same vein that had sprung up in the United States around the time that this segment was, you know, when the, when it first aired. 
Yeah, uh, many of these cults are ruled by self-proclaimed messiahs. Um, and the leader of this cult was named Nelson DeCloud. Um, he was an ex-police officer. Yeah, which... and DeCloud was literally of the clouds. Yeah, well, it's like, oh, what an original name, DeCloud. It's like, you know, anyone who took one year of high school Spanish would know that. You know, like, wow, that's, that's really original last name there, buddy. But, uh... <laughs> ex-police officer man it's like god these people aren't they supposed to be held up to a higher standard i mean i'm not saying they're supposed to be perfect and beyond scrutiny but good lord man like you know this guy pulling people over for traffic tickets and stuff in the back of his head he's thinking man if only i could start a call and make everyone change their last name to DeCloud and just like have sex with as many women as possible that would be awesome oh yeah you're gonna need to sign this ticket here okay have a good day it's just so crazy to think in my mind that like that's what was going on uh yeah his quote unquote his quote unquote family was uh founded by forrest cloud who was nelson's father now this probably had a lot to do with uh you know why this guy you know ended up taking on the family tradition here but uh when his father forrest died nelson uh, ascended to the ranks of leader um, nearly all the family members were encouraged to change their last names to DeCloud. And um, according to Julie, Nelson thought he was God's son and that he could do no wrong. I mean, yeah. we're, we're noticing a lot of tropes here of, yeah. of typical cult. Exactly. Activity. I mean, like most cult leaders, he had a commanding presence about him that included piercing white blue eyes that could strike fear and anyone who gazed into them. Uh, Julie moved to the commune in the mid 70s with her parents when she was just six years old. One of the many disturbing memories Julie has of her time with the DeCloud cult was the perverse forms of devotion that Nelson asked for his followers. When she was 10, DeCloud forced her to watch him have sex with a female member of the family. Quote, unquote. I mean, just just think about this. I mean, it's just messed up. It's, it's sexual deviancy Sick. At, at its finest. You know, like, here's a guy, you know, much like most of these cults that, 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 that want to live out their perverse fantasies in the name of, of religion, in the name of God, whatever God means to them. And they're, you know, I'm sorry, I got no, I got no sympathy for these leaders of these cults. I got no understanding for them. To me, they're just sex perverts, they're sex deviants, they're narcissists, they're megalomaniacs, and they have such a commanding personality that they can just get weaker-minded people to... You know, because everybody has that feeling that they don't belong at some point in their life. Everybody has that feeling of they're just floating around aimlessly in life with no purpose yeah. or direction. And, and so here comes this commanding, powerful guy who seems to give them a lot of uh, compassion and and gives them a place to live. And a purpose, and, you know. Because, and a purpose Because only. Julie's parents join this cult willingly. I mean, they... They, they must have sought this guy out or something, or they at least knew of him, you know? And that's, yeah. that's one thing the show just kind of brushes over, but it's like her his her parents joined this cult, so... And, You'd be surprised how often it happens, how how often these you know, people uh, willingly go in and move in uh, into these communes with these cult leaders. They're, these people are susceptible, and then they come in contact with someone who's... Uh, able to manipulate them to me it goes beyond religion it's might start out re religious based but to me these are people 
who just they they know that emptiness that we all know you know every now and then and they they lack fulfillment they you know life you know when you just go into your nine to five and you're you know you're not really you don't really feel like you have a purpose you know that can get really lonely and alienating and isolating and and when you have this charismatic figure who seems like he has all the answers, it, at that point, it almost doesn't matter if the person seems like they know what they're talking about or not. You're willing to jump on board anyway. And, and, and you know, that's how this seemed to have formed, just like any other cults. I mean, look at um, one flub I made with Don Devereaux when I was on the phone with him. I, he said uh, Georgetown, referring to Washington, but I, I go... He said Georgetown. I go, oh, like the uh, with the Jim Jones saying, and then he's like, no, like Washington D.C. And I was <laughs> that's like, that's Jonestown. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I I am an amateur. You can tell now. <laughs> I felt like such yeah. an idiot, but uh, but no, with Jones. Yeah, like Jim Jones. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, same same deal. Jim Jones was a very uh, magnanimous, uh, not dictator, um, but you know he. And I guess the reason why it was less messed up with Jim Jones was because, you know, he was allowing all races, all people. At first, it seemed like a very good thing, and it probably was. But see, Jim Jones, like all these other people, had that thirst for power. Yeah, it becomes a power trip. Like Adolf Hitler or anybody else, you know, throughout society and some certain figure who is in politics right now i'm not gonna get that anyway um <laughs> i mean absolute power corrupts absolutely and when you have that much power over uh many uh, a numerous amount of people it it ends up corrupting you and uh nelson de cloud is just one example of many uh this twisted behavior though you know all this type of stuff where he has uh forces young girls to watch him have sex it did not stop there Nelson would then ask Julie to have sex with him and even say despicable lines like, what I want you to do is what God wants you to do. Uh, and that stood out to me because I'm just like, that's the typical type of uh, dialogue that this type of person would say. Right. It's manipulative. They're trying to make someone feel guilty. They're trying to uh, manipulate them into believing that this is God's will. And it's far from it. And Nelson's acts were more like the acts of a demon or the devil than that of a saint. Julie refused his advances, but Nelson was so caught up in his messiah complex that he still thought he could do no wrong and continued to make sexual advances towards Julie all the way into adulthood. Nelson would punish young Julie as well for refusing his advances in various horrible ways, like standing her alone in the woods with no food, no water, or anything to keep her warm. Keep in mind, this scumbag did this to her when she was 10 years old. And he would even have the audacity to say things like, I don't know when I will come back. God will tell me when to come back. And Julie stood there, shivering in the woods alone, for eight hours until DeCloud heard the call from his deluded mind and picked her up. This guy just makes my blood boil just thinking about him and his actions my first thing is why in the hell do you want to have sex with a 10 year old girl if you're i mean i don't know i just i just can't you know there why? is a kind of with religion i'm not saying this is this is the cause of this and the cause of why he wants to sexually molest this 10 year old girl 
But there are repeated cases of pedophilia in the church, specifically the Catholic church. I don't know if he's Catholic. I don't know what it is. I don't know if that might have been how he was raised. I think some of the thing with some of these Catholic priests is they are forced to become celibate. And that creates some really, really messed up, crazy psychological problems. And one of them is sexual deviancy. And um, that's a proven thing. That's, that's an actual cycle. There's a psychiatrist and psychologist who have actually done studies on this. Um, there's a great film called Spotlight, which uh, was based on the true story of these reporters who revealed all of the, the pedophilia that was going on in the Boston church. Oh, wow. And um, you even have Batman himself, Michael Keaton, in a, in a supporting role as well. It's a great film. I highly recommend it. And... Um, yeah, some of these people, it, it's, I, I, I'm with you. I don't know why the hell they do this. I don't know why they want to have sex with these uh, 10-year-old uh, girls. Uh, but it, it mu- I'm just thinking it must be some sort of, sort of psychological thing. That's my best. But what's guess. weird about it is, like, in this segment, he's he's banging all these chicks in the quote unquote yeah. family who are all you know of age and older and like he's pretty much he pretty much just wants a sexual buffet and he wants complete control and yeah. it's just how people don't see through that. I mean, it's it's mind control. It's Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. It's all the. All, Absolute it, Stockholm Syndrome. It's a, a, a soup du jour of mental Ill, uh, illness and mental uh, mental uh, uh, effects uh, that are that are being used in these kind of situations. And abuse. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah. and, and these are also these usually are people too that don't have anywhere else to go. So uh, he lords that over them. You know, I give you a home, I, I feed you, I clothe you. Um, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be where you are right now if I didn't come in and save you, you know that kind of thing. Um, it, it's similar similar sort of thing that goes on in, in uh, any sort of abusive relationship, uh, even with people who are married, you know, and have kids. There's the same sort of thing. I mean, the husband could just continually abuse the wife, and and in order to remain the, to to keep the family together she's willing to put up with all of this and she doesn't want to leave him I mean, people are like well why don't you leave him and it's not as simple as that i mean a lot of people in the media just make it out as oh this the woman should just leave and it's never as simple as that it, it, it's there's a lot of different factors that go on and it's not as easy as you think and it's easy for you to look at it from an outside perspective and be like oh you know i wouldn't put up with that i wouldn't deal with any of that i would leave first time it happened and that that would be it but you never know until you're actually in that situation i think for some people the crushing loneliness and uh loss of like well what do i do now i think that takes into effect yeah. too you know like financially too i mean what what these people if they were financially well off they will, probably would not have moved in with this uh cult leader yeah, you never know though. Sometimes though, because these cults a lot of times can be uh, financed or bankrolled by wealthier members. Yeah, of the I mean, there's that too. So I mean, it, it, it's there's not really a concrete answer for why these cult leaders do what they do or why people decide to follow them. Um, and uh, it is baffling to me because Nelson would continue to 
do horrible acts. I mean, his humiliation tactics, tactics and twisted terror, uh, they were not the only, uh, they were not only associated with Julie. His reign of terror spread to everyone in the commune. One member had her hair cut off and publicly humiliated in front of the entire commune just for speaking up about Nelson's cruelty. After this unnecessary and cruel display, Julie agreed to go with Nelson to a small house on the property because she was guilt-tripped into believing that the humiliation was all her fault. And she was young and impressionable at this time as well. And what happened next was shocking. Nelson took Julie prisoner in the compound and forced her to become one of his many unwilling sexual partners. When she was 15, Julie made her first attempt to escape, which was sadly unsuccessful. This, this, that moment is like the one where you're just like, oh, wow, that is, I mean, all this other stuff was messed up as well. You know, he's lording his power over these people, and now it's turned to rape. You know, it, it, it's, it, this, this, is, this is going way too far. You know, when she ran away, they, they, they picked her back up, and according, yeah. according to Julie, uh, she was ordered to disrobe in front of everybody, and, and in the segment, he's like, offer your shoes, and there was like some burning barrel, and they'd throw it. Yeah, it was throw, a burning barrel, yeah. Yeah, uh, offer your shirt, and all this other stuff, and then she was, uh, she was beaten, you know, like severely yeah. beaten, uh, publicly. I mean, Exactly. I mean, I th- I think he got a thrill out of publicly oh, I'm sure. humiliating these people in his commune. I really do feel that he he got he's got his rocks off with that, as well as you know his rocks off uh, while while raping people, which is just messed up. I mean, I want to say a certain word, but I'm I'm trying to clean up my act, so <laughs> I'm not I'm not gonna say it. Yeah, but, you yeah. people have finally gotten to us, okay? We're trying to make this more kid-friendly with our content. Does that make you happy? No, I'm just joking. Um, so, after that uh, after that situation happened, uh, she, she had to always be with them. She was always by his side. She had to sleep with them. I mean, both, I'm sure, literally and figuratively. But she had to sleep with them in the same bed. Uh, he would not let her out of, uh, out of his sight. Seven- yeah, she stayed with him against, his, against her will in his bus. What what a winner in his in his awesome bus. Uh, seven years passed, and uh, then in 1992, the opportunity arose again for Julie to escape. Uh, at Nelson's request, Julie contacted a satellite repairman who named Tim Santini. Eventually, he made his appearance at the commune, and when he got there, uh, he was saying, uh, you know it seemed like okay like i don't really get what this is maybe it's like a party yeah. going on or something like that i saw all these buses and he said when i got into the office i more or less recognized julie after building a rapport with her over the phone julie was very meek and she seemed stifled or held back because of some reason that wasn't obvious um yeah they started uh, beginning a flirtatious relationship with one another that started out as a friendly fo- as a series of friendly phone calls and then over time developed into something more. And over the next couple of weeks afterward, Tim started to actually fall a little bit for Julie, and he even asked her for a date. Uh, but Julie kept putting things off, saying that she wouldn't be ready for a year. Uh, to test Tim, to see how far he would, be, he would be willing to go to start a relationship with her or to help her. And this led to the events on the night of September 17th, 1992, when Julie finally managed to escape from the clutches of the cult, 
and out of the personal hell that she was stuck in. One thing that appealed to Julie about Tim was uh, he had no respect for Nelson. Um, when he came in to fix their cable, uh, you know, in the segment, they have one of the guys leading Nelson. And they're like, um, this is uh, our first our brother in Christ, Nelson. And Tim's just kind of like, Oh, Hey, Hey, what's up? And he didn't, he didn't pay him any respect or treat him like he was anything. And that made her feel good. That made her feel like this was yeah. some guy she could really trust. Well, Nelson didn't really seem to respect Tim either. Well, Nelson so didn't it, respect it, anybody. He probably didn't respect anybody other than himself, or maybe he didn't even respect himself either. Um, you know, some people you'd be surprised. They act all commanding and they have this powerful presence, but in a lot of ways, they don't. They have very low self-esteem. So uh, the next day, Julie told her. Uh, actually, uh, at dawn the same night, uh, when Julie escaped with Tim, Nelson went looking for her, and he and a friend were dressed as police officers, and then went to Tim's house to find Julie and to take her back to the commune. Fortunately for Julie and Tim, they entered Tim's brother's house instead. And Tim lived only a few yards away in the house next door, and he and Julie were sound asleep. This is a moment that was like, he's not as smart as he thinks he is. He's God's son, or like God's dumbass. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> really going around to the house next door. I mean, not even checking the right address or anything. It's just... I thought this scene was pretty badass because, you know, they br- they're they in there and they're like, hey, uh, where the police? Where's Julie? He's like, oh, what? What? And he's like, where's Juliet? And the guy goes, what? Are you guys are police? Where's your warrant? And, you know, he's just kind of waking up. And he's foggy. And they're like, tell us where Julie is. He's like, hey, pal, where's your warrant? You know, and then as he wakes up, he knows what's going on. He's like, hey, buddy, get out of here. Get out of here. And he, like, grabs his bat, you know. And, he's, and, yeah. and then all of a sudden, Nelson and his buddy ain't so bad anymore. And they start kind of cowering away. I thought how they, exactly. did, thought how they did that scene was really good. It, it kind of gave yeah. me... Gave me that hell yeah man stick it to that guy you know yeah Screw it was a crowd pleasing moment that's for sure yeah the, the next day Julie told her terrifying tale to Tim and his brother they both decided that she should get a restraining order against anyone that she felt might harm her or abduct her again and Detective Dane Larisma or I don't know how to say his last name it was a weird last yeah, name it was a weird last name of the Clay County Sheriff's Department brought Julie in for questioning he had long been suspicious of the actions of the cult. And with Julie's long, detailed, disturbing discussion of her life and of abuse inside the commune, his suspicions were confirmed. According to Dane, he and his fellow officers had a hard time just charging Nelson with rape because there were so many other crimes he could be charged with as well. So that's a real eye-opener that shows you how bad and how horrible and how twisted and how awful this man is. Or was. So, after hearing news of the potential warrant out for his arrest, Nelson DeCloud rounded up all of his followers into buses and moved them away from the commune and into a different location. And uh, as of that moment, they had not been seen uh, for weeks afterwards. And I wanted to include this quote uh, from uh, Julie. She was talking about how she really feels that more people, he should be caught and tried and this is why she felt that he should be caught and tried. My mom and dad need to know that he isn't the Messiah. He's a criminal. What he was doing is wrong. 
And this actually does have a good ending for once. This isn't one of those unsolved mysteries that remains unsolved, thankfully. Right. The scumbag did not... He did not uh, avoid the law, and he did not uh, stay on the run for very long. Uh, Nelson DeCloud was captured soon after the segment broadcasted on television. The cult settled in a farmhouse somewhere in San Angelo, Texas. Once state and local agents converged on the scene, DeCloud kicked out the screen on an upstairs window in an attempt to escape. And I like this moment because I could just imagine this this scene in my head, and it's kind of like something you see out of the Keystone Cops and... It just shows you, or an episode of Cops, it just shows you like how how out of his league this guy really was. The deputies approached uh, DeCloud, and he apparently tried to wrestle with a few of them briefly, but there were so many law enforcement officers that that didn't last very long. They put the handcuffs on him and escorted the scumbag out of the building. He was booked at the local county jail and then extradited to Liber- Liberty, Missouri, to stand trial on four criminal accounts, including forcible rape and sodomy. Since his arrest, other members of the commune came forward to testify about things they witnessed in the group. I just, I would have loved to have seen a reenactment of that, like an extra reenactment of the cops catching the guy. Mm-hmm. You know, him kicking out the screen door, and I could just imagine him being like, You ain't gonna get me, I'm son of God! It's like, yeah, buddy, that's what they all say. You're coming with us. <laughs> go go, the, go! all the commission on his ass. Exactly. It's a- and it, yeah, in September of 1994, Nelson DeCloud was tried and convicted of the charges against him. Nelson refused to testify in his own behalf. The judge followed the jury's recommendation and sentenced him to 220 years. Bam! Thirty state prison. Bam! I'm sorry. I just I this this has I know I only do this for skeptics, but I just got to celebrate. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so, 224 so years. That means he's going to have to die and resurrect himself quite well, he a few did. times before he gets he out actually, of jail. He actually he actually passed away. Uh he passed away and uh um April 14th on April 4th, 2014, he died of natural causes in his prison cell. Good. And that that is one guy, if heaven does exist, that is one guy that is not going there. Absolutely not. Part of me, if, if God has a sense of humor, he might he let him up there. No, you know, hey, welcome, my son, to hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a, that was a really interesting segment. Um, cults are, are like really fascinating to me, just because these people. It's like, where do they get the nerve to do this? And yeah, you know, the sad thing that they don't really touch upon is that, I mean, typically cults disband when the leader is taken out, but sometimes they don't. You, I mean, usually with these cults, there's a second and third in command, and there's yeah, this guy probably had. He a, obviously had a lot of power in that community. Yeah, because I think then, he had a lot of friends, and he when he went, when Julie first escaped, he put together some kind of search party to go look for her. So he obviously the, there's probably there's probably another DeCloud. You know, it's right. just not the same uh, cult leader, and that's what's so sad about that. But there were a lot of people who did come forward. So hopefully, there 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 probably are a few that probably remained in the cult, but there's a lot of others who are probably like, no, I've been waiting for this opportunity to, to escape and to get out of this situation. And, and, and now, now I can, and I'm, I'm going to take that. 
Uh, it, it's just it's so infuriating to see someone who masquerades as a man of God and, you know, has a family that he deludes and controls and uh, inflicts uh, sexual and physical harm upon them, as well as emotional and psychological abuse. Uh, the, the, this, the reenactments are really well done too in this segment. The guy that they casted to play to cloud, I think was, was a great casting choice. This is a guy who he did have a presence about him and he, he, good old boy kind of thing, you know, but, uh, it, it was just definitely, he was a very risible, uh, guy. And, uh, it, you definitely hated the guy. That's for sure. Especially when he's saying lines like, well, it's only you know when Mary uh, had uh, had Jesus, she was only fourteen years old. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. So they do that. They twist things. They mm-hmm. twist the words of God. They they twist. Uh, uh, that's they, that's they, why they do exactly what pedophiles do. Pedophiles do that same stuff. You know they 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 try they make to... excuses for it. Yeah. They try to justify their uh, sexual deviancy, their their behavior, and, and there's no justification for it. So yeah, that was the DeCloud case. Um, compelling case, fascinating, but messed up nonetheless. So this is something that we do a lot of times on the show here and there, where we, we, we kind of profile some of the fans who listen to the show, just, you know, so it's more of a community feel and you can kind of get to know some of, some of your fellow listeners. Um, this time I'd like to tell you guys a little story about some someone named Heather Ramsey. Now, when she told me this, I could not believe it. It was crazy, but she swears it's 100% true. So, when she was a little girl, her family, she had a large family, uh, they wanted to take a vacation to Miami, okay? Now, she lived in Chicago, I believe, or some, some something like that. Somewhere up north, for me, anyway. And... Because they had such a big family, they were in such a rush to get to Miami at this time that she actually got left behind. They left her behind at her house. And, you know, this was the 90s, so there was no cell phones. There was none of that. So there was no way that they could really get in touch with her. Um, so basically, you know, she's scared. She doesn't know what's going on. And to add to all of that, Two burglars, uh, who have been known to stalk this particular neighborhood, they start kind of prowling around her house because they think, okay, the family's not home or whatever, but they didn't know that she was home. And they start, like, messing around and stuff like that and, and start to try to, like, break in. And then they get spooked when a neighbor, you know, comes and sees them and, and, and scared them away. Well, I don't know what happened with this girl, especially being so young, but she summoned some kind of inner strength and kind of in almost enticed these these burglars to like come into her house where she had all these elaborate traps set up for them to come in contact with. Um I mean, it was all kinds of stuff. Like, one of the guys fell through the floor, and another guy was electrocuted, and she had these paint cans that were on, like, these ropes, and when they went up the stairs, she threw them down the stairs, and they kind of swung and would knock them out, and eventually, through a series of these traps, they ended up getting the attention of the police, and they were caught. I mean, that is a crazy story. I can't believe that 
that that that happened to one of our listeners. Heather, I'm glad you're okay and hope you've recovered from that event. And, you know, I mean, it's completely true and completely original. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're, we're happy that you survived, Heather. Good, good luck, you know. I mean, good on you for the ingenuity. Um, so, moving on to our next topic, we had the suggestion from one of our Patreons. Uh, they want some more kind of cryptozoological stuff, and I said, you got it. So, uh, this was something I'd been wanting to talk about anyway, so it kind of fit in perfectly. Um, and, of course, that would be La Chupacabras. Actually, now that I think about it, this might be one of the last kind of cryptozoological things that Unsolved Mysteries has to offer that we haven't covered yet, because we've covered Mothman, Bigfoot... Um, well, we didn't cover the Loch Ness Monster or anything like that. You know, so. I almost don't want to do the Loch Ness Monster because it's talk about like a played out. Well, it, well, also it's it, the the infamous picture is fake, so yeah, that's another thing. True. I mean, it's yeah, I get the Bigfoot's also played out, but the. We're not covering this from the from the the side. I of... mean, we could talk about it and then also briefly mention Champ and other uh, sea, other lake monsters. Um, Champ was a good one, uh, but then the segment that I was able to get didn't work, so that sucked. So. Oh. Well, I mean, I'm not coming at these from like just the the public's perspective of bigfoot i'm coming at this from the actual unsolved mystery segment about bigfoot that's what i'm yeah. talking about i i don't yeah you know i'm not so much interested in having a discussion on whether i think bigfoot's real or not i am more interested in having a discussion on unsolved mysteries episode. or talking about all those new uh, video footage or those new pictures of bigfoot that show up on the internet lately that are just you know so blurry that you can't see anything. As far as I'm concerned, the days of um, video and photo evidence are just gone. Unfortunately, it's a sad day, but um, I think with Photoshop and, and all the the video editing that's out there that is available to the common people now, I, I just literally think everything is just it, it can be it can be faked so easy. It can be made. It can look so good now. Um, things that you couldn't necessarily do in the 90s, things yeah. that your everyday person would not have access to. Yeah. Speaking of a chupacabra, like that's sort of a recent thing. Like Some people were spreading this picture. I remember they were sharing this a couple years ago on Facebook and places of this, what they thought was a chupacabra. And, and being a huge movie fan, I was like, no, that's, that's Extro. That's the alien from Extro. I know what that is. That's not a chupacabra. That's... They took screenshotted uh, the alien from Extro and found a way to superimpose it in some black and white uh, photo of what looked like some place in the middle of the woods. And they, you know, made it black and white and touched up some things. And I have to admit, you know, if you didn't know of that movie, uh, it would look pretty, pretty realistic. It looked pretty real, uh, pretty authentic. But no, it's fake. What is extra? <laughs> it's a it, it's a really trippy, weird, messed up movie uh, from the eighties. Uh, I think it was eighty two or eighty one or eighty three. I think it's eighty two. And uh, there's this alien that abducts this kid's dad, and then the dad comes back later, and he like gives this kid a hickey, which gives this kid like powers. 
So he's able to bring things to life out of his imagination and things go crazy. So like he has like a, he imagine like a black Panther shows up and kills somebody. Uh, this little, this little guy dressed as a jester, like a little person shows up and kills somebody with a hammer. It's, it's, it's like, you, it, it's almost like an acid trip and you're watching it. And you're just like, what the heck, what the hell am I watching? And then like, then uh, there's a really crazy scene like before the because the alien shows up and then the dad gets burved out of somebody yeah fully grown out of this woman uh it was a pretty effective uh uh special effect and then there's all this crazy stuff too like this alien turns uh the dad alien turns uh this babysitter into an egg laying machine oh and God, like Mike. the yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna need you to stop watching this kind of stuff, okay? I'm, <laughs> I'm just telling you right now. I'm just gonna need you to. You don't need that in your head, all right? I'm not really the biggest fan of Extro, but it's it's got some decent visual, uh, some nice makeup effects, and it, it's it's slimy and it's it's sleazy. It doesn't make much sense. The ending has the alien like takes the kid with him to the uh, onto the spaceship and they fly away or whatever. Uh, and then it has like two different endings. One that neither of them make any sense. And there's two two sequels for some reason. Um, yeah, I always remember the trailer though, because the trailer was funny. Because the narrator, it sounded like he ran, he didn't have enough time. Like he was on a limited time <laughs> limit. So when he was doing the narration for the trailer, he had only a certain amount of time. So I always remember this trailer because he goes in and says. They're like, not all aliens are friendly. Extra. Rated R. <laughs> and then that's <laughs> I always thought that was funny. Because like, he just... It's like the studio is like, okay, we're paying for five seconds of, of studio time here, dude. Uh, you're taking a little too long there. You need to you need to get that rating in really quick. That's like... Um, Every yeah. whenever I uh, do my student loan, I know we're getting off topic. Screw you, people. We're gonna get to it eventually. You know we will. <laughs> um, whenever I do my student loan repayment, it's an automated voice, you know, command thing that I gotta go through on my phone. And so they have pre-record, uh, pre-recorded uh, sayings of this guy saying these numbers, you know. So like whatever your number is, and he's like, your remaining balance is one, four, eight, seven, nine. Four, six. Like he says nine really angry. Like every time he's like eight, two, nine, four, two. It's almost like 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 the angry drunken stepdad did the voiceover for just the nine one. Like nine. Now clean your room and do your homework, you little crap. You're not mine anyway. Like maybe that's a stretch for an example, but I don't know. I just always thought it was funny. Like he just gets peeved with nine. He's like eight, seven, nine, four. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, Puerto Rican rainforest, heaven on earth, right? You would think so. I mean, it's down there in the, what, uh, tropics. Um, but a mysterious beast is lurking in the forest that is turning heaven into hell. That's some good writing right there. Yeah. Three fingers on each hand and on each finger, very long claws. Uh, La Chupacabra uh, plays on livestock and pets. Composite drawings based on dozens of uh, eyewitnesses kind of show what this thing looks like. And, I mean, you can you can look it up if you want to see. It's like a combination between a, like, wolf 
and a lizard, like or or like dragon, like snapdragon. Look at an alien. Alien. It's it's the weirdest freaking thing that yeah. you've ever seen, really. And even people in the the show admit like that this thing is. It doesn't seem like it should be real, but it is. It's very weird. It, it, it looks like the. I'm looking at one of the pictures right now. It looks like a gray, in terms of its head. Right. But it has like red eyes, and then there's like all these spines and stuff, on its on its head and on its back, uh, and it's got these long uh, fingers with long claws attached to them, and it's got this kind of stocky body. It is a very weird, uh, creepy-looking thing. So, David Negron was the first one to... Oh, that was a bad Spanish R roll. Let me try again. David Negron, whatever, was the first one to encounter the beast. Before dawn of September 9th, 1995, Dave went out to check on the family goat. Dave was startled to find his goat had been killed. Quote, After I found the goat, I was standing there looking around, and that's when I saw the creature. It was black and hairy, large red eyes, and a crest about its head. When I saw it, I was scared and began to run. I've never seen anything like that, and I've never been that scared before. Later that day, investigators from the civil defense uh, came... I guess that's a Puerto Rican thing. Uh, they came to investigate. When they examined the goat, they only found two puncture marks on the back of the goat's head, yet all the blood had been drained from its body. The next day, like a vampire. Yeah, the next day, the media dubbed the animal Chupacabras, or Goat Sucker. Over the next three months, dozens of attacks were reported. Strangely, their carcasses were largely intact. Uh, Jorge Martin, or George, however you want to say the George in Spanish. It's, uh, it's Jorge, I think. That's what I thought. Uh, he kept up with the story, quote, The puncture wounds go into the animal, right, right into the animal, into the brain, like it's uh it's like it's looking for certain organs uh sometimes Ugh. it'll go for the liver sometimes the reproductive organs can uh, you imagine if that was you like not like imagine if you were in place of the goat i mean that's just a very horrifying thing to think about yeah i mean it's 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 not outside the realm of possibility to think about though that that an animal out there would have evolved over the years the ability to hunt in such a way you know it, it, maybe it's not an animal though maybe well, maybe it's some kind of mutant creature uh experiments gone wrong kind of may, like maybe what the mothman was or you know maybe it's it could be alien i mean in origin i mean to be honest i mean a lot of the characteristics that they're talking about in terms of the goats and uh what's there isn't a lot of blood there's no blood in the body there's none of that it's very similar to cattle mutilations so, um, and those have been, have had UFO sightings tied into them. So it's not, uh, it's not that, that much of a stretch that it could be alien of, of alien origin. My like, thought was that it, you know, because if you're to believe all the things that we've talked about previously about these UFO sightings and stuff, I mean, it's it's pretty much common knowledge at this point that, that aliens are doing research on people, but who's to say they're not doing research on animals as well? Usually when yeah. a, a human is abducted, sperm and ova samples are collected. So uh, to me, it's not outside the realm of possibility that possibly chubacabras would be a... A mutate or a combination of maybe uh, alien semen or whatever was put into an animal, 
maybe a wolf or something like that. And they Lizard. just want, they wanted to see, you know, and, and test what, you know, and maybe uh, the chubacabra. They got loose. Or, or, or maybe they, they planted it or something, you know. Maybe a chubacabra is a kind of a, a hybrid of a gra- alien or like a, a gray and some kind of a wolf. Or maybe it could be some kind of yet un- unidentified um, species. You know, it's still uh, definitely in the realm of possibility that we have not identified every single animal species. But in the manner that this thing is killing and, and how it it kind of acts, it does seem to have more of an intelligence to it than just your average, you know, dumb animal. And, and, and Yeah, and there's different uh, descriptions of what this creature looks like. I mean, so the, some people say it's described as a kangaroo-like monster with reptilian features uh, and scales, and then other times it's described as dog-like. So there might be some, because later on some of these, you know, uh, the skeptics, they go in and say, you know, oh, it's just mass hysteria. <laughs> yeah, you but, know, it's funny that you say dog, like, because when, whenever you Google uh, Chupacabra, the two images that you get are the lizard creature that we're talking about and dogs. Uh, but these are, like, psychotic-looking dogs. These are not... These, these look like dogs that have been, like, not fed for two months and for some they're reason... They're more wolf-like. They look like Doc Brown from Back to the Future combined with a dog combined with a skeleton. It's <laughs> Doc Brown. Yeah, it's got it's. It looks crazy. It looks this thing looks ugly <laughs> as hell. But this is the more dog-like one that you, that you see. So there's kind of two conflicting images as to what is the definitive so it's, Einstein uh, killer Einstein. So if Einstein, uh, if Doc experimented on Einstein, and then things went horribly awry that that's that's what the result would be i would say take 20 percent doc brown 70 percent <laughs> crazy dog and 10 percent skeleton it is such a hilarious analogy just, really hey, mike just go with it okay <laughs> just just I, I, i'm trying to I'm, just it's, roll it's, with it's me fun. here on this one okay i need your I, I need you now i need your support now more than ever for this crazy great comparison. scott <laughs> great scott scott <laughs> So, um, the attacks had been reported all over Puerto Rico, with the greatest concentration being in, oh Jesus, Canovanas. By then, even the mayor, Jose Soto, began to take an interest in the investigation. Now, they actually got this guy on the show, which I thought was pretty cool, like the mayor of this town in Puerto Rico was willing to come on and solve mysteries. Pretty neat. Quote, I began to take an interest in this matter when I visited a farm where five sheep were killed. I saw two wounds in the neck. Uh, it attacks all animals, but mostly sheeps and rab- sheep and rabbits because they can't defend themselves easily. There have been more than 100 animals killed. At the moment, uh, we have some hysteria, some real problems, and some fear, uh, you know, are, are in fear. And I'm determined to resolve this matter, end quote. Um, yeah, I can see why some people, I, I think there was a little bit of mass hysteria. There were some things in this small town, I mean, this would be absolutely terrifying. This is not something... It'd be scary anyway if it happened to some, you know, locally around, you know, my way or your way. But the, the socially things are different over there, so you know that that would be really, really something that would. It's probably a small town, so the word spreads really fast, and and uh, they probably. Thought, I think for they some probably people, thought it was El Diablo. <laughs> 
I think for some people, though, I think some of the sightings might have been exaggerated a bit because some people might want to, they want to, oh, I saw it, I saw the Chupacabra as well, because they want to be a part of the the phenomenon. Uh, so that's the kind of thing that's kind of hard sometimes with these type of events because sometimes it might have just been one thing that happened, like one sighting, which is more than more likely, maybe one or two or maybe three sightings, and then it balloons into more than one. Well, see, un- unlike, unlike UFO hysteria, this, there's actually a physical carcass that's left behind with, yeah, exactly. with telltale yeah. signs. So if you want to be a part of this club, uh, you kind of have to have an animal on your property that has the telltale yeah. circular... And I think the people who talk about the, the telltale signs, you know, their animals are... But I think there was also probably other people who would chime in and say, "Well, I saw it too." I saw it, but yeah, yeah, that's just no, that's just natural. Speaking I mean, of skeptics, there was one guy uh, at, on, in this segment that you think that they're starting out by going, "Okay, so now they're showing a skeptic," but then it switches. He goes, "I didn't believe in this chubacabra that people were speculating on. Personally, I was just never convinced of these stories. I just never believed them." And that changed one night as uh, the guy's last name is Rivera. Uh, Rivera and some of his friends were driving home from church, and then it quotes him again. I saw something strange on the side of the road. At first, I thought it was a puppet, but then it began to move. Uh, it had, no, just the thought of a moving puppet. Yeah, is creepy, dude, you know? seeing a puppet on the side of the road at night. I don't want to see that fucking saw going on here. You want? Would you like to play a game? Uh, it had large eyes that illuminated. It 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 uh it had hair and had claws. When I opened the car door, the animal stuck out a long spike from its mouth. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. I interpreted this spike as a defensive ma- matter, so I sat back in the car and kept watching. Now I know. He exists. He is not any known animal. I tell you sincerely, what I saw was not of this world. So that, 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 guy, was, uh, that guy was pretty... That was a good interview to have on the show because it was like, you know, even though... You know, he was speaking Spanish, so they had to sub sub it in English. But it was still, you know, he seemed very. That would be that would be a bone chilling night. Yeah, for real. Um, Unforgettable. I mean, I, I'd probably. You know, I watch horror films and stuff, but I mean, it's different when it happens in real life. Well, that's like, like when it happens in real life. You can't you can't disassociate that. You can't be like, oh, it's just a movie. Yeah, it, you know, no, I, it, it's something you saw. And with your own two eyes and experienced and something was like right in front of you. I mean, just the glowing red eyes. It looked like a moving puppet, the spike coming out of the mouth. I mean, that's even that's even more unsettling to me than any of these ghost stories. (laughs) Well, that (laughs) That was what was crazy about about the Don Devereaux interview, because it's like literally I'm watching all this unfold on TV. And then here I am talking to Don Devereaux and he's talking about all these people like, you know, he's saying like, oh, yeah, the guy who was shot and killed like next door or across the street from me, you know, blah, blah. And he's saying it to me, Josh Cannon. Yeah. He's saying this to me and he's talking about all these things that have went down. And I'm like, this is not a TV show right now. This is a phone call I'm having with a person who is on a TV show who is recollecting real events. Now I am talking yeah. to him. This stuff happened to this guy. Like, it was so yeah. surreal. And I imagine it would be kind of the same thing to see something like this it's like what the hell because you know you see movies but that's on the screen and but to see it in real life is just it's mind-blowing um most witnesses 
uh, described the creature very similarly, the same details. The head was more humanoid looking, flat nose, small slit-like mouth, much like a gray, uh, with fangs protruding out, uh, almost no ears whatsoever. In late November, Jorge Martin and a TV news crew asked a veterinarian to examine the animals supposedly killed by chupacabras. Uh, the vet made some surprising discoveries. Precise circular wounds were on the back of the necks of the rabbits, and uh, the removal of certain organs was also present in these these rabbits, and the lack of rigor mortis was also present in all these rabbits, which is um, something that happens to every living thing. When it dies, it gets rigor mortis. Um, I used to know what it was. I think it's some kind of a... I mean, it's a stiffening of your your body for that's i mean i know that much but i forget what actually causes rigor mortis to take place but uh that was not present in these rabbits um a month later dr soto examined 20 dead birds each one died from a circular hole in the back of the head so it has it, it has a modus operandi here this chubacabra thing so like i was saying earlier if, if if you wanted to be a part of this club which i don't know why anyone would uh the carcass in question would have to kind of have these uh telltale things and to corroborate the 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 that this was what everyone was saying it was the guy uh rivera's story about how he saw it on the side of the road and it had a long spike that came from its mouth that kind of gives you the you know all you need to know there that like well that's its method of killing it some kind of a straw like sharp object almost like uh if you have a piercing uh, if you've ever gotten a piercing in your face or in your ears or whatever, if you look at the needle that the piercer uses, it's hollow, um, and it's very sharp because it actually takes out a piece of your flesh, a small piece, so depending on how big a uh, gauge you get, um, it takes out a piece of your flesh they can put in the jewelry. Well, I can imagine this spike thing that comes out of this thing's mouth is very similar to that. It would, it's very, very sharp. Uh, when I, I've had, I have several piercings, a lip ring, an eyebrow ring, a earring, uh, the, the piercing's usually not even that painful because the needle is so much sharper than a normal needle. It just goes right through your skin, and it's hollow in the middle. So I would imagine it's something like that. I mean, to be honest with you, I think there are worse deaths in the wild to be had than if this thing got a hold of you. It actually sounds like a fairly... I mean, especially if it gets, if it sticks it into your brain. I mean, dude, you're pretty much, yeah, you're pretty much well, exactly. Right I'm now. talking about when it's trying to search for other organs and it's, well, doesn't... yeah, and you're not dead yet. Yeah, that would be unpleasant. Um, but I would rather that happen than, say, a bear or shark attack. Um, although with well, the... shark attack would probably be pretty quick. Yeah. Unless it, it depends on what type of shark. If it's a great white, you know, maybe it might just eat you whole or, or nibble on you. Most of the time, when sharks attack, it's they think you're a seal or something, or or, or you're in the wrong area at the wrong time, or you provoke them. Um, shark attacks usually aren't that common. Yeah. So. Well, I still think it would be slightly more unpleasant than uh, this this method of uh, dying. Until recently, uh, every reported attack of the chupacabra was in Puerto Rico, but last month back in the 90s. In Miami, two goats and 26 chickens perished in a manner that was almost identical to the killings in Canovanas. Maybe it was dogs or some kind of cruel prank, or perhaps, just perhaps, the chupacabra does walk among us. And you can imagine Robert Stack delivering that line much more eloquently than I just then, but uh, yeah, that is freaky. Um, it was a great segment. It was a little on the short side, but I mean, what what more can you really say? They could have it? easily put that on the 
on the box set. I know, I know. Because it's short. I don't know why I mean, they wouldn't have put that on there. There's a bonus disc on the bonus disc, at least. Yeah, because, I mean, it fits perfectly in there with Strange Legends. Although, I will say Mothman, a thousand percent more interesting, a thousand percent better segment. Yeah. Um, Mothman actually, uh, funny, though, uh, that I think of Mothman because um, there was a lot of animals found in the Point Pleasant, West Virginia area that uh, w was killed actually in a similar manner. The blood would be drained, um, uh, organs would be removed. But, um, you know, we've already decided that this is a mutant X-Men kind of moth, so this is a different genre. You know what would be awesome if they made some kind of, like, movie or video game like uh, Chupacabra versus Mothman or Mothman versus, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a large gray or something like that? That'd be pretty sweet. Um, well, there's, there's some shitty, there's some really awful uh, uh, Chupacabra movies out there, like Chupacabra Terror, like this Chupacabra thing or something. It attacks these people on a cruise ship. It's just pretty awful. Oh, <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> oh, my God. So there's, uh, there's some awful Chupacabra movies out there. There's a found footage one, too, I think. Yeah, so that's uh, that's pretty much all I have to say about Chupacabra. Um, you know, for you guys who um, haven't skipped to the Don Devereaux interview... Um, we didn't want to take up too much of your time. We didn't want this podcast to be five hours long. Yeah. So, no. um, that concludes the official, um, Mike and Josh segment of this podcast. We don't want to keep you waiting much longer. Um, so up next we have got the, uh, Don Devereaux interview. Um, I went and edited it and tried to spoof it up the best I could. I recorded it directly through a, a, a app on my phone. I didn't want to try with the speakerphone method and recording it through speakerphone. I figured that'd be inconsistent quality. I wanted to get a direct recording of Don. So I downloaded some app that, that, uh, taped the call and he was aware that it was being taped and all that. And, uh, so, for now, uh, we are going to leave you with the Don Devereaux phone interview done by yours truly, but um, I guess we'll do our official goodbyes right now. Uh, have a good yeah. rest of your night, and Mike... Have a nice night, and thanks for listening. All right, the Don Devereaux interview. All right, so before this starts, um, the phone, when the recording cuts in, I basically was talking to Don about the mistaken hit segment that he was featured in where Doug Johnston was killed instead of Don. And I basically asked him, um, so the segment ends with Robert Stack saying, Don Devereaux has recorded sources from a number of credible people that say he's next. How has your life been since that segment? And we kind of go from there. So have fun. Well, I had I had some sense uh, at the time we did that uh, that quick segment on unsolved mysteries that that uh, uh, I was under surveillance. I mean, it was quite obvious that there was somebody sort of stalking me, and uh, so I had to take the warnings pretty seriously. I had been called by the uh, the bureau chief for the San Francisco Chronicle in in Washington. Uh, who had an, a CIA source who had warned him to warn me, and I had been contacted also by Israeli military intelligence by a colonel in the Amman who was a source of mine who had CIA connections to warn me I had a problem. So I, I took it seriously, and I could physically tell that there was there were people cruising my <laughs> my, my driveway. Uh, I was being sort of watched. Um, and right after we got that little blurb on that that first blurb on the air when Stack went on. Uh, 
before we did the broadcast on, on uh, Doug Johnson, we did a little warning. Uh, Unsolved Mysteries was very quick to note that uh, I might have a problem and that they would obviously be very upset if something happened to me. And kind of a warning that, you know, not not a good idea to do anything. And right. Very quickly, the, the surveillance and all that kind of stuff seemed to go away. And uh, basically, if there was anything coming in my direction, it seems to have been uh, brought to a halt uh, by the, the, the scrutiny that that Unsolved Mysteries happily was uh, was providing to the situation at that time. So nothing happened. I mean, I, I, the problem has sort of disappeared. Um, the homicide became an open case. Uh, I don't think the Phoenix Police Department was ever comfortable with the notion that it might have been an agency-related shooting. I think they found that very difficult to get their get their head around. Um, and I can't be absolutely certain what happened. I just know that the guy got shot. It had all the earmarks of an agency hit. It was a, a 25 caliber, a back of the left ear, single shot, classic right. agency kill. It shuts down the autonomic nervous system immediately. I saw photographs of the guy that was killed, and I cut myself worse shaving, and, and he bled from that one. Yeah. He just died quickly. Um, it had all the earmarks of an agency uh, hit. Probably if it was an agency hit, it was a rogue agency hit. I don't think it was planned by the director of central intelligence. I think it was conducted, if it was that at all, uh, by some guys locally here who were involved in the in the uh, in the guns and drugs business. It was happening out of a place called Firebird Lake, a little airstrip south of Phoenix. And I've been poking around down there, and I think I basically angered some folks, and uh, somebody got concerned enough to pay me a visit. Wow. Uh, and I think I was just lucky, you know, just just uh, lucky. Uh, the guy that was uh, shot was at at uh, an address right across the street from mine. My my street number ended in three. Uh, his number ended in eight. And if you write a, you can easily write a three and an eight that look very much alike. Right. And I used to get mail from his side of the street, and I'm sure he got occasional mail from my side of the street. And I think what happened is the shooter simply was in the wrong place. And this guy drove a car that looked just like mine, had facial hair like I did, and I think he was just very unlucky. Gosh, that doesn't suck. Yeah. It sucks for that so, guy. Yeah, I think it had nothing to do with anything. And, uh, you know, uh, all these years later, there's been no more to tell about it. Um, I was so, warned I was warned afterwards by um, somebody in Israeli intelligence in Mossad, who had a base here in Phoenix, to quit doing that particular investigation. And I took the warning seriously. And uh, I basically backed off what I had been doing at the time. The Mossad guy told me that that uh, whatever I was looking at was way above my pay grade. That there was nothing I could you know, do to impact whatever was going on in terms of illegal activity at that airstrip, and that uh, all I could do was get myself hurt. Wow! And, um, I couldn't change anything. Uh, <laughs> he asked me rather pointedly if I had wife and kids, and he told me to get my priorities straight. And not to, uh, you know, be a, uh, a kamikaze pilot down there being reckless. And uh, I didn't take it as a warning. I took it as a, I mean, I took it as a warning, not a threat. I didn't think he was uh, anything other than just being friendly. But I, I had to concur with him from what I was looking at. That uh, uh, that was not the smartest place for me to be poking around. I'd been run out of that airstrip twice. Once by a truck, once by a helicopter. When I was poking around down there, and they obviously had my plates, and they knew where I lived, and and uh, you know I was up against something that was 
a lot more formidable than I could really do anything about. So, so did um, as far as the investigations that that you and uh, you, you mentioned on the segment, uh, Dan Castellaro, who, who's another guy that we've done uh, our podcast segment on. Um, did, did y'all's research into, um, for instance, he was researching uh, what he called the octopus, and uh, mm-hmm. I know he was uh, requesting information from you at one point. Did, did any of that uh, research into, uh, like, the CIA and the Department of Justice uh, corruption and all that with the gold bullion and all, did any of that ever come to fruition? Were there any ever any arrests or indictments made as a result of, of that research? No, the, 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 the gold stuff that I was looking at, Pretty much happened in Arizona between the years uh, 1972 to roughly 1985, 73 to 85, maybe about a 12-year period. By the time I found out it was happening, it was over. So it, it, you know, it had been pretty much culminated by the time I even became aware that it had been going on. The the the, the gold moving out of Southeast Asia pretty much had completed moving by 85. Okay. And 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 uh uh so you know and it probably, probably pretty much had had been dissipated in the in the bullion black market long before I even became aware that it had been going on as a as a reality here at all. So no nothing ever happened. It was a situation involving, you know, high level US government involvement. And, and uh, the agency was basically uh, acquiring uh, a source of funding they didn't have to go to Congress for. Uh, there was around $200 billion in play, uh, in billion coming out of both Vietnam and, and later the Philippines, uh, that had been stashed by the Japanese at the end of the Second World War. Oh, wow. And uh, this was all the all the, the gold booty that the Japanese had looted all over Southeast Asia from temples and all kinds of stuff. And toward the end of the Second World War, the Japanese buried it. Uh, they buried some of it in uh, in Vietnam around Cameron Bay. They buried uh, lots of it in a number of locations in the Philippine Islands. Uh, General Yamashita was the Japanese general in the Philippines. And so they stashed away what was, back in those days, a couple hundred billion in, in, in bullion. And the OSS, the precursor of the CIA, got the Japanese burial maps uh, at the end of the Second World War. So the intelligence community had some idea where this stuff was and roughly probably how much there was. And uh, toward the end of the Vietnam War, uh, they began moving it out of Cameron Bay and they began moving it out of the Philippines over a longer period than that. The stuff coming out of Vietnam largely went through the Philippines as well. And eventually it all came back to the States where it was uh, processed and converted into commercial gold ingots and sold on the international black market. Much of it ending up in uh, in Switzerland and in, in Kloten, which is an airport near Zurich. There's a there's a large gold depository like a Fort Knox under that airport that's used internationally by all kinds of people to store vast amounts of, uh, of bullion. And once the gold gets there, it pretty much stays there. The paper may change in terms of who owns it, but the gold pretty much sits there at Kloten. Uh, and uh, I was able to trace from the stuff I was looking at that that's where a lot of the gold was going. Um, but no, nothing, nothing ever happened. The, the the records that I ended up with, I ended up with some of Morgan's records, which the government didn't know. I may not know until you broadcast it that I actually have them. 
the the uh, I have some records that the government didn't confiscate when they confiscated Morgan's office records after he was after he was killed. Uh, he had stashed a small amount of records, kind of a cross section at another location, and I have that that collection of stuff. And the the gold was being sold in the black market, either to law firms or banks. Uh, both of them both of whom have have client privilege in terms of uh, divulging who they were buying the stuff for. And uh, so I have no idea who the clients were. I suspect they're multinational rich people, uh, you know, a consortium of, of uh, the world's upper 1% were investing in, in bullion uh, and doing it uh, in the black market. The stuff was being sold at, at X number of points below New York or London closing because it was black market stuff. So it was cheaper to buy the black market bullion than it was to buy legal, just enough of an incentive that they probably had no trouble selling it. And, um, it, you know, it's it's done by the time. And it was sold in huge amounts. The biggest single shipment that I saw was, was 5,000 metric tons in one deal. Oh, my gosh. I saw, I saw some, some, one, some one metric ton deals and lots of one million ounce deals. Um, they were wheeling and dealing in, in volumes that you just, you know, almost can't imagine uh, as this stuff was being moved from, ultimately from Asia through the United States, basically to Europe. What strikes me about all this information is that, that these, these are things that, you know, the, the average everyday person assumes is happening, but, we, you know, we have no proof. We have no uh, solid evidence of it. We just have kind of these... Uh, you know, no notions that this kind of clandestine stuff is going on, and obviously, if uh, any kind of government uh, level officials were involved in this, then I mean, from what you were saying in the uh, segment, uh, that it was you know not under an official capacity; it was all a clandestine operation. So that's, that's well, just there was there was, there was, a, there was a faction within the national security establishment that was. Uh, very hawkish, and and you know back in the 80s there were as many as like seven little wars going on in Angola and all over the place, where uh, the U.S. government was backing uh, uh, folks that were fighting insurgencies or governments they didn't like, and uh, the agency appreciated having an opportunity to have a, a bank account, if you will, that they didn't have to go to Congress to explain. So the, the notion of having a, a, a black bag fund, a slush fund of that magnitude. To conduct, you know, military adventurism in various places without congressional oversight was a very attractive idea, and it certainly lasted for a while. That was quite a bit of money, um, but yeah, they were they were doing it. But it was not, you know, it was not official policy. You simply had you had segments in the national security establishment in defense and in CIA and other places that supported this kind of thing. Uh, I don't know how much you know, some people in the National Security Council certainly knew. I would have to imagine in the in the 80s that Ronald Reagan didn't have a clue. Uh, a lot of the stuff was going on probably right around him and under him without his knowledge. Um, but it was uh, a lot of money, hell of a lot of money, and uh, people got killed, sticking their noses in it. And uh, I can understand that when you're talking about 200 billion dollars, uh, that's a lot of that's a lot of loot. Right. So there, there was there was jeopardy attached if anybody was you know stupid enough to to uh, to mess with it. Had I messed with it while it was actually going on, I might not have survived. Would be my best guess. But by the time I was looking at it, it was done. I mean, there was a limited amount of damage I could do. Right. And uh, I don't think you know. I'm I'm almost surprised that anybody even bothered to to mess with me at all. I think it was an overreaction on the part of you know somebody's part. 
But as far as Danny Casolaro goes, he he was kind of getting into it. Um, Danny Danny was Danny was in a very dangerous spot, and Danny Danny was very reckless. Uh, Danny was the kind of guy who uh, didn't tell people what he was doing, didn't tell people where he was going, traveled with his files, didn't want to leave them at home where somebody could steal them. Well, he didn't realize how easy it was to steal them when he had them with him. Right. When he was when he was killed in Martinsburg, West Virginia, I mean, all of his files disappeared. He had a briefcase and an accordion file full of stuff with him there, and it's all gone. Uh, whatever Danny was doing uh, disappeared, you know, with his with his death. Uh, he was. Danny was so anxious to be kind of a lone wolf star, to make it big, to do something splashy, that he wouldn't have to share with anybody else. That he kept everything very much close to the vest, and that's a very dangerous way to play when you're messing around with uh, the kind of things that he was looking into. Uh, he was he was very careless at that level. I didn't know him very well. I mean, we had one you know lengthy phone conversation. That's it. And uh, he wanted me to ship him everything I could be willing to ship him on the gold stuff I was looking at. And I was just about to put it in the mail when I heard on the radio he was uh, he was dead. So I didn't send it. Uh, what what do you suspect? Uh, if you have to guess, what what would you, what do you suspect that he um, was was he just like naming names as far as like the conclusion of his research? You know, of, of pointing the finger at. You know, certain people who were involved. Danny, Danny had a high-level source in, at, an, at an IRS facility in Martinsburg. I don't know who the source was, and I don't know what he was getting from the source, but that's why he was there, and uh, and that probably had something to do with why he was killed. Uh, I don't know exactly what he was after, but he was working the octopus. He was working it. He saw the gold stuff I was looking at as just one of the tentacles of that octopus. And he was, uh, you know, busily working on it. He planned to go out to California, I know, um, to do some work uh, out there at a, uh, on an Indian reservation where there was some hanky panky going on. And he had he had he had a game plan. Uh, he didn't share it all with me. He didn't share it with many people. Uh, but he obviously was careless enough that whoever he was going after had a pretty good idea what he was doing. And and. Uh, uh, I think he paid for it. I'm pretty sure he was he was a homicide victim. Yeah, not much, yeah, not well, much question about that. It certainly appears that way from uh, all the details that they uh, they they post on the segment. That was the, that was the conclusion that we came to anyway, for sure, given the details mm-hmm. of his death and everything. Um, yeah, that's, well, that's, the fact that his files disappeared, the fact that you know the bathroom was partly tidied up, um, and somebody did mop up some blood on the floor of the bathroom with a towel. He obviously didn't do that. There were bruises on his head. He was had some fingernails torn, like he'd been resisting something. Uh, had had there really been a careful scrutiny of that as a, as an autopsy, uh, things might have been learned. But you know, he was cremated pretty quickly, uh, and um, there was never really a serious uh, uh, autopsy done. That he'd been embalmed before his brother could even get in, into the body to do even whatever autopsy was was remotely possible after after embalming. So um no, it was it was obviously a covered up violent death of some sort. And then all of his stuff disappeared. So, you know, that tells you something in and of itself. Those files didn't just walk away by themselves. Yeah, and obviously those things are probably uh long gone by now, I would assume. Uh, whatever they were, I mean, we, you know, all we know is in is very general terms of what Danny was doing, but I don't know the details of what he had, 
And uh, but he was quite excited when he talked to me. He was certainly not suicidal. He was uh, a guy with a mission. You know, he was on his way to some big story, and uh, quite quite worked up about it. Actually, um, uh, I would would have loved to know what he had, but you know, we'll never know. So but, uh, you feel, I, I don't you feel I don't work like, that way. Yeah. Um, so you you feel like as far as. Um, you know, all the kind of the threats that were coming against you, you kind of feel like uh, the visibility of Unsolved Mysteries at the time, because, you know, at the time, Unsolved Mysteries was one of the top-rated shows. It was very visible by a lot of people. You feel like the fact that uh, that they kind of covered the case and kind of made it, made you somebody in the public eye that, you know, well, we yeah. can't just stuff this guy out because too many people will know now. You kind of feel like that's what, what kind of, well, when, when I when I when I was when I was warned by Israeli intelligence uh, that I had a problem, uh, they told me that the next time around it, it wasn't going to be a shooting; it would be a, a crime of opportunity. Was the way it was phrased that I'd be the victim of a hit and run or a mugging or something that would make it look like it was just a random event. Oh wow! And uh, but Unsolved Mysteries made it very clear that if that happened, they would not accept that. That uh, whatever happened to me, however it happened, they would look upon it as as uh, a deliberate. You know, crime related to the work I've been doing, and I think I think the, the putting that out at the time with the audience that they had um, had a lot to do with uh, with putting a lid on it. I also think the fact that that people like the San Francisco Chronicle and others were aware from their own sources of the problem it just made it clear that if anybody was going to do anything, that they weren't gonna, they weren't going to be able to do it as easily as maybe they had thought they could. And I think that took the uh, the pressure off. And because it probably was a rogue operation to begin with, there may have been pressures within the agency itself to you know put a lid on it. Uh, but whatever happened, the problem very quickly and very conspicuously went away after after the initial uh, warning. Because right after this happened and I got the warnings, I flew out to Burbank. And even before the segment we did on, on Doug Johnson was aired, uh, they did a you know a couple of minute segment the following Wednesday. Uh, just as a, as a warning to whoever was messing with me, just to back the hell off, and, and uh, I think that worked. I think it was uh, effective. Oh yeah, I would have liked to have seen those. I haven't. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that was something that they just aired at the time, and that you probably can't find on TV anymore or on the internet or whatever. Uh, that would have been been a nice little uh, follow up. Yeah, I, I probably I probably even have a VHS copy of that someplace in my in my office. I have no idea. So long ago, I can't remember. But it was just a an ad hoc blurb. They flew me out. They, I, you know, they put me in a suit, put me on a stool, and uh, interviewed me for a couple of minutes and put it on the air and stack and some others said a few things and that was it. It was all very quick, and um, and I had played the tapes for them that I, I had taped the contact I had with the Chronicle and with Israeli intelligence, so they had both tapes to listen to, and uh, they were pretty clear um, that uh, there was a problem, you know, floating around. And I had pissed some people off, and uh, people were uh, concerned about it. So well, uh, I, I was surprised. Well, I was very uh, happy to learn when I uh, searched you on the Internet that you are still alive and well, and I'm sure everyone... Well, I'm doing fine. I'm doing <laughs> everyone fine. listening is happy to know that as well. So, so what... I mean, I I've, I've saw your uh, the letter that got sent to me. It's got all kind of all the things that you... Uh, done, and you can find this information on your website too. Um, what what have you been uh, kind of working on, like since 
that time, I mean, I, I have the letter. I can read it, but... Um, I've worked on a bunch of stuff. I worked on a, on the second and third edition of a book called Mary's Mosaic on the murder of Mary Pinchot Meyer in, in Georgetown back in 1964. She was uh, John Kennedy's girlfriend, serious girlfriend. Uh, Georgetown, was, as in uh, Jim Jones's... Uh, uh, Georgetown in the sense of Washington, D.C. Oh, oh, I got you. Okay. Uh, suburb of Washington. She was a wealthy lady, and in, in, uh, she was Ben Bradley's sister-in-law. And she was the last two or three years of John Kennedy's life. Uh, she was his serious lady friend. Had he survived the presidency, he and Mary Pinchot probably would have married at some point. She was the ex-wife of Cord Meyer, who was a top-level CIA official, and she knew who Kennedy was angering what in what he was doing uh, at the time, and she knew pretty much if he was killed, you know, who did it. And when the Warren Commission report came out, she threatened to go public with what she knew, and she was killed uh, within a week or two uh, in Georgetown and uh, silenced. And uh, obviously the same people were behind it as were behind the Kennedy assassination. And uh, a book by Peter Janney called Mary's Mosaic uh, is out now in third edition. I worked on the second and third at Peter's request with him. Uh, worked on some stuff on Oklahoma City. Um, I've been working on a lot of different things that are, some of them reflected on my website briefly at least. I've continued to work on the Don Bowles homicide, still doing some work on that many, many years later, still still discovering some interesting information regarding it. And I'm working on a couple of films. I'm working on a documentary film on the Bowles case and the beginnings of another film on corruption in the Phoenix area generally back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So uh, I'm busy. I'm, I'm, it's very strange. I'm 82. And I probably have never been busier in my life than I am <laughs> right now. This is supposed to work the opposite way, isn't it? You're supposed to be yeah. uh, kind of calming down in the, the later years. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not complaining because I'm not a, a rocking chair kind of guy, but right. I, I had not anticipated being this busy. In fact, I'm probably a little busier than I would like to be. Um, but um, at least it's better than not doing anything at all, so I can't complain. I've had a good time, and uh, I'm still pretty active. So uh, these documentaries that you're working on are are, are they are you, are is there any kind of like plan to release them maybe on uh, Netflix? The first doc the first documentary, uh, which is untitled, will be a probably a, uh, roughly a one and a half hour to two hour uh, feature documentary. Hopefully, it'll be released next year sometime uh, with a somewhat narrow focus on the Dombles car bombing in 1976 and the convoluted miscarriage of justice that. That followed that. Um, the other film is, which is a California-based uh, commercial, uh, you know, made for for streaming on HBO or some goddamn thing. I don't know where they're going to go with it. Is much more speculative. They're, if they're going to do it, they're going to have to, uh, as investors, you know, raise a lot of money to get it bankrolled. Whether that happens or not, I'm remaining to see. But but um, it'll be interesting to see. But right now. Um, a certain amount of my time has been taken up in, in film work. Um, whatever happens with the documentary that's going to be completed this coming year, uh, it'll be available on the web, and it'll, among other things, and all of the outtakes will also be available on my website. Okay. And, I, and I've done 12 or 15 hours on camera already, just narrative of uh, the Bulls case, and all that stuff will be basically available uh, on my website as, as research material for anybody that wants to look at it down the pike. And I'm trying as kind of a bucket list to get as much as I can get done on some of these things while I can and make sure that there is a, a good record left behind. 
So it's it's a busy time. So just for uh, anybody who's listening to this who may not know what the uh, Balls case is, according to your letter here, um, it just says uh, um, there is um, the aftermath of a car bomb of a murder of a Phoenix journalist, Don Balls. Um, maybe you could uh, just elaborate a little bit on, on what that case was. Uh, Don was Don was the victim of a car bombing in 1976 that was carried out uh, because of his work looking for uh, an organized crime connection in the in the Greyhound racing industry in Arizona, which and I'm certain that there, there was a connection. And Don had been working for some time trying to establish that. Uh, he was getting close. He was on, on the edge of of making some major disclosures in that investigation. Uh, he also had a source who was the ex-wife of one of the principals in the dog track business here. And a lot of the motivation to kill Don was, was personal. It was a, a, was anger that he was using this guy's ex-wife as an information source. So there was a certain amount of personal um, aspect to the killing. I mean, somebody put a bomb under Don's crotch and blew him up at high noon in Phoenix. Um and there was a miscarriage of justice following it. The people that did it were well enough connected that they managed to misdirect the case. And a couple of guys were ultimately prosecuted who had nothing to do with it. Uh, one of them ultimately died in prison, you know, convicted of something he didn't do. The other one ultimately did manage to get himself loose. But it was uh, not the finest hour for the criminal justice system in Arizona. It was a reflection of a great deal of corruption in this town at that time. And... uh uh, both in the killing of Don and in the cover-up and, and, the, and the framing of innocent people to to make it work. So it's a, it was a mess, a really bad situation back in the uh, in the 70s. So the 60s, 70s, and 80s in, in this area were um, an extraordinarily interesting and corrupt and violent time. And uh, fun to work as a journalist, but... <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, not not necessarily a lovely place to live uh, during that period if you had any integrity. It was a it was a very corrupt situation. Well, yeah, that's kind of how it came off with the Chuck Morgan case as well. It, it, it just kind of seemed like things were being played pretty fast and loose in Arizona as far as you know the things you could get away with. Um, well, Morgan Morgan was killed just because they suspected he might that he might not be a stand up guy if he got in trouble. Uh, he was killed because they were afraid if he was ever prosecuted, he would talk too much because he knew too much and. It was kind of a it was a kind of a preventive you know <laughs> homicide. He hadn't done anything. Yeah. He hadn't squealed. He hadn't done anything at all. But they were just afraid he might, and kind of got alarmed about it and decided to solve the problem. Um, but he was very much involved in, in a money 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 laundering operation in Tucson for for Joe Bonanno and uh, some other organized crime groups that Bonanno had allowed to use that system. And uh, Morgan was in a position where he could have done a great deal of damage had he ever decided to to um, talk to people about it, but he hadn't made any, any moves like that at the time. Um, but Bonanno was not the kind of guy who took chances, and somebody got alarmed about Morgan, and he was killed. That was in 1977. And, um, uh, and you know, because he was also, what, what had happened is the mob had been using uh, the the escrow op operation that Morgan ran in Tucson to not only launder money, but to also uh, handle the, the the gold sales for the mob's access to black market gold that they were stealing from Motorola and other places at that time. And when the CIA began moving money, began moving gold out of Southeast Asia and the Philippines, uh, they took advantage of the of the organized crime um, 
gold refining and illegal sales operation that Banana was running out of Tucson. And rather than reinvent the wheel, the CIA simply arranged to, to piggyback on top of the organized crime black market gold operation. And uh, so Morgan was involved in that as well as what he was doing with the mob. And uh, But it was the mob that killed him, not the agency. So all of that stuff was, was handled through Arizona. That was the reason, because Bonanno already had a well-established machinery for uh, for processing and selling uh, illicit gold in large amounts. And uh, the agency just took advantage of that and made him an offer he couldn't refuse. So, now, there was some there was some detail on the show that I was curious about, and like everybody else was curious about uh, when we talked about it. And uh, there was some detail about... Um, Chuck Morgan having some $2 bill that was found in his underwear that had some kind of a map, uh, crude map on the back of the $2 mm, bill. That's true. He had, a, he had a money clip in his shorts that had a $2 bill in it, and it had uh, drawings on both sides and a map on one side and a bunch of names on the other and um, and some numbers. And we've never been able to figure out precisely you know, what that represented. It was obviously... Uh, very, very kind of code for something. He obviously was yeah. trying to tell some sort of a story. Uh, there may have been a companion piece, a, a letter that supposedly existed at his house. If so, it disappeared. And uh, no one's ever been able to uh, figure out precisely what that $2 bill represented. But it's very graphic. It's, uh, it includes a map of the Tucson border area with Mexico and, and uh, uh, a bunch of Hispanic names and a lot of numbers. And uh, I have no idea to this day precisely what he was doing, but he obviously was trying to leave something behind that would be helpful. And uh, I'm damned if I know uh, what to make of it. Nobody uh, so, can figure it out. That's uh, so cryptic, you know. <laughs> it's, you think uh, maybe they would leave, he would leave something more obvious, maybe a letter or something. You know? Well, he, he he also told his wife that he had left a letter. And my, my impression is that between the letter and the $2 bill, probably somebody could have, like a book code, they could have figured out what he was doing. Uh, True. But uh, his his house was searched after he was killed by people posing as FBI agents that were not FBI agents. And if there was a letter, I think it got removed. Uh, they went through the house with a fine tooth comb, looking looking you know, looking through the pages of all the books on the shelves and everything, obviously looking for a piece of paper. And uh, they may have found it because it never turned up. And that happened within a matter of days after the. Uh, after the homicide. Wow, it's, it's so surreal, like, talking to you and actually hearing about these things that actually happened. Because, you know, for, for us and, and our listeners and all, it's like we love hearing about these kind of things because, obviously, they're intriguing. For me, personally, I find them very intriguing and fascinating. But, you know, my, my life is a million miles away from anything like that. But, like, you, you in some parts of your life were kind of in the thicket of these things, and these things actually were happening around you. Like, what... Were you ever, like, frightened at any point as far as, uh, you know, uh, having people, like, stalking you and hearing about all these cases, these people who you knew or acquainted with, and they were, you know, being kind of... Well, other, other than the fact that somebody may have, may have taken a shot at me, I mean, which didn't work out, yeah. I, really didn't have, I really didn't have any, any serious problems. I lost a button in a bar fight once where somebody grabbed my <laughs> shirt, and I lost a button... Um, I had a pickup truck try to run me down in an alley one time when I was coming home shopping late at night, and I don't think it intended to hit me. I think it intended to scare me. Um, and over the years, that's about it. I mean, I really have not had a whole lot of 
of uh, you know, I've been chased. I've, I've had to, you know, had to had to haul ass to get out of some places on occasion, but I, I haven't been hurt, and I haven't been um, really in any any you know serious kind of confrontations very often with anybody. I never felt most of the time in any kind of jeopardy, and uh, you know, conducted my business like any other journalist. Uh, I wasn't afraid to go out in the streets at night and go to bars and do what I had to do, but. Uh, looking back uh, on it now, I may have been a little naive, uh, and I may have been lucky. But I think, you know, the biggest thing I can say is that I probably, in all candor, never was that big a threat to anybody. I think I was a nuisance. And I'm almost saying that with regret. Um, I don't think, by and large, people saw me as anybody who could really cause them that much grief. I was just a, I was just a, a nuisance. And there were lots of safer and easier ways to deal with a nuisance than to kill him. So I, I think that's probably what kept me uh, from more serious trouble. I mean, I'd like to think I, I could really cause people a lot of grief, but in point of fact, it's often taken me a By the time I've really figured stuff out sometimes, you know, years have gone by, and it's no longer, you know, it's like the gold stuff. By the time I got on, it was over. Um yeah, I don't think I've been that much of a of a of a, of a hassle at this point. I, I'm sorry to say, and uh, so I've been chronicling a lot of stuff that I really was not able to affect. Um, so in that respect, I've almost been more of an historian uh, than than anybody that was you know changing the course of events, and uh, that probably kept me alive and well. All right. Well, that's what I was going to say. You're you're alive to uh, tell the story, and uh, you know some of these other people, uh, unfortunately. Aren't so. I mean, that's that's definitely uh, a positive thing. I take it as such. <laughs> I take it as such. I'm happy to be here. So uh, I, I got to ask, um, and I know people would be angry at me if I didn't ask. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you actually got to meet Robert Stack and you know have conversations with them or anything like that. Do you have any kind of stories about Robert Stack or how how well, he was as a person? He seemed like a very nice guy. I only had a couple of occasions to spend any time with him. Um, if you recall the show, there's he used to he used to do some of his narrative walking around with a trench coat, right? Between a, between a bunch of pillars that looked like they were like he was walking through a an area of, of uh, architecture of some sort. And uh, we used a church site up in Pasadena, California, for a lot of that uh, shooting of him. Uh, introducing segments that way, walking around, seemingly at night in a trench coat, uh, being a little mysterious. Um, and he had a trailer that he obviously hung out in when he was shooting up there. And I've had a couple occasions to you know, sit in his trailer and drink coffee with him. Um, he was considerably elderly. He looked younger in, in television than he than he than he was in fact. He was not a young man anymore. Right. Uh, but he was. Uh, he was much more translucent in skin and aging in person than he looked like when he was on camera. But he was active and bright and, and uh, enjoyed what he was doing, took great pride in the show, uh, along with his role as uh, uh, that Chicago FBI agent, Ness, Elliot Ness. Yeah, Elliot Ness, yep. That was the, those were the, the, great, the great prides of his life were portraying Elliot Ness and, and doing Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, back in the days when Stack was uh, sort of talking head for the show, uh, we had about a 25% solve rate on cold cases, which was actually pretty good. Uh, we reached you know, upwards of 30 million people at peak 
we had a call-in center where you could call in anonymously to a telecenter in Burbank. Right. And and um, the first show I did, uh, we got like a thousand phone calls, um, which was a, for me that was extraordinary. I mean, I worked in the print media before that, and I, I might get two or three angry letters, <laughs> but I, I put down a thousand, and and we got a thousand phone calls at the telecenter. Hey. And uh, and so we, I later learned that from working that I did I did a number of segments with Unsolved Mysteries over about ten years, and uh, about about three percent of the of the phone calls we got were useful. Um, oh my God! That may, that may not sound like much, but if you get a thousand phone calls, that means thirty thirty working tips. True. Um, you, true. The point is, you got to go through you got to go through everything. But if you have the patience to go through the thousand and see what they have to say. And you can screen out the ones that are obviously not going anywhere. You'd end up with some useful information, and so we were able to get useful information enough of the time uh, that, as I say, we were running about a 25% solve rate on on cold cases. Uh, when we aired the show on Wednesday nights, um, the FBI normally had a guy at the telecenter in Burbank because we would always do a couple of of, um, of one or two items each night about a fugitive who's you know on the run from something. And they would have a bureau agent on the site in case we got a phone call saying where the guy was so they could act on it quickly and catch him while he was still in that motel in Kansas City or something. And so the FBI worked with us very closely on fugitive cases. And uh, we we were you know, getting a lot done. I was really sorry to see it ultimately go off the air. Yeah, we are too, trust me. That's what we're kind of, we're trying, you know, to as this podcast grows, we're really, we're really hoping that we can, because I've already talked to an assistant from the show, and we're, we're hoping that they can strike some deal with some online streaming service to put the show back on, uh, at least on, like, Netflix or something, because uh, the fan base for Unsolved Mysteries is hugely underestimated by... Uh, well, the, 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 old show, the old shows are still on cable somewhere, as I understand it. Well, it, they did a revamp with Dennis Marina as the host, yeah. and mm-hmm. um, it's... It's just not the same show. Uh, no, none of the fans are, are, are enjoy the Dennis Farina unsolved yeah. mysteries. Everybody wants the. Well, Robert they're, they're not. They're not doing new. These, these are all old segments. They're just right. revolving yeah, this right. old stuff over and over again. Yeah, I, I've seen some of that. I mean, occasionally I, I know that that's out there. But uh, I know I, I talked to Terry and John, I, the people that own Cosmic right. Productions, on occasion, and they're they're very anxious if they could ever do it to get the show really, you know, back on the air again with with the capacity for new segments. Uh, they unfortunately don't seem to have been able to get get sponsorship to get that done. That's what I uh, figured. But, they, but they've they've talked about it. You know, they they'd like to. They have no problems with the idea of of reviving the show with essentially the same format. Um, but it was it was quite effective. We we did some really good stuff, and we we had a pretty good I say a good solve rate, and uh, it was a hell of a lot of fun to do because. Uh, for me, coming from the print media, it was like a kid in a candy shop to get that kind of interaction with an audience where you've got that many people calling in after the show with ideas and information. Um, it was extraordinary. Right. Uh, it was just uh, a lot of fun to go out. I used to go out on Wednesday nights and be there when I had a segment on so I could occasionally take a call myself if it was really a, a oh, productive cool. one. And, and it was uh, it was a, a marvelous uh um, way to to do journalism. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, sounds sounds like it. I mean, you know, but it, we, it changed it changed a lot. What happened in part was that the the networks at that time it ultimately went from NBC to C, to CBS for a year, I think. And mm-hmm. CBS wanted a whole different look. They wanted everything to be young. We had to select young victims, young cops, young journalists. They were they were aiming for 
like a 17 to 35 age range or some damn thing. And they wanted everything on the show to be young. And uh, they, in the process, they screened out an awful lot of stuff that we otherwise could have done, ah. including me, including me ultimately, because I was getting to be way too old to fit in that mold anymore. So I just quit. Um, and then I think it went off the air at the end of that year. But, uh, you know, the the advertising guys uh, got a hold of it and had a whole different idea who they wanted to target and uh, completely, you know, screwed it up as far as I was concerned. Yeah, that, that's kind of how I felt about the Farina uh, revamp too. They they they're clearly trying to make the unsolved mysteries look like the you know the next uh, CSI or Forensic Files or you know they're trying to make it all look young and hip with the you know video effects and the quick cuts and the you know shortened segments and all that kind of stuff and you know and we you know people we see through it you know it's like we're not we don't want that you know we want the the original stuff, and, and I, I will never understand the whole, uh, you know, marketing uh, demographic, you know, trying to make it young and all that. It's like the show didn't get successful like that, so why would you, I mean, I don't know. It's like, why would you change it? Why why fix what isn't broken, you know? I, I, don't I couldn't figure it out either. I mean, the, the show was reaching middle-aged and older people. Uh, you know, that's who, that's who had most of the discretionary income back in those days, so I don't know why they weren't attractive as a market. But uh, the show was reaching a lot of people and reaching them quite effectively. But somehow people got this notion that everything had to be aimed young. And uh, it changed the demographics of, of the entire production and uh, I think screwed it up. I don't think Terry and John were happy about that. I think they were just doing what the network insisted that they do. I think this didn't come so much from the production company as it did from the, from the network folks. Uh, the suits at CBS, I think, were the ones that... Uh, that had this vision that uh, was not, a, I think, a very good one. But I know Terry and John are quite committed to getting it. Have you ever talked to them? They're good people. I, right? I would love, I would love to talk to those guys. Um, I haven't, I haven't uh, dug dug up their contact info yet. I don't, I don't even know if it's available online. But I would, I would love to. Uh, have I can a give, I can give you their phone number if you want it. That would be fantastic. Uh, the two key people are John Cosgrove and a lady named Terry Muir, and um, they've been running it for a long, long time. Um, good, good folks, both of them. Um, I sent them a copy of the letter you sent me with a note I was going to talk to you. So oh, cool! Yeah, they, yeah. they know they know you're out there. Uh, um, I presume they have no problems with what you're doing. I would assume they would appreciate the support. Well, I mean, um, what what's happened is uh, in the '90s when me and everybody, you know, all the all of our main listeners when we were kids our parents and grandparents would play the show, mm -hmm. uh, the, the demographic that you were talking about earlier, they would play the show and we would watch it, and mm -hmm. we we all had a fondness for it. And it's not just a nostalgia thing, because if it was a nostalgia thing, there's a lot of bad shows that I would be watching now too. But even, yeah. as, even as a kid, I, I just knew quality when I saw it. And so all of the kids are grown up now, and we're all in our 20s and 30s, and, and we want to hear about the show. We want to see the show. Yeah. Uh, and so I've, we found, me and my friend Mike, who uh, do the show, we found that, that our, the, our, the largest demographic for our show is, uh, you know, the 20 to 30-year-olds who are now grown up. They love the show. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm Trying to get it out there and, and hopefully. Well, talk to them. Talk to them sometime. Talk, see if you can. Um, you're, 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 as I recall, you're in Florida. Where are you, where are you based? I'm not, yeah, I'm out of Jacksonville, Florida. Okay, so you're a long way from California. 
Yeah, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you, you try to get a hold of them at some point if you want to talk about something. But um, uh, yeah, I'm not too sure what you can get done. I mean, they would like to get back on the air themselves, so it's not like they don't want to. Um, but it's just you know finding the finding the, the the sponsorship to to do the show the way they want to do it uh, is apparently difficult to do right now. And uh, I don't much have much of an understanding of a lot of what's contemporary television on 82 and. God knows there's probably 14 generation gaps between me and an awful lot of stuff I'm looking at. <laughs> so I don't watch television much anymore, and um, uh, I'm kind of not involved in it particularly. Um, and I, I don't even own a computer, as a matter of fact. I don't use a cell phone. I, I use a landline and a typewriter, and I'm a good sort of 19th century journalist at this point. <laughs> hey, nothing, nothing wrong with that. All that stuff's coming. But it back works for me, out. and I just don't I don't get involved in all of this uh, stuff. But but uh, you know they're they're good folks in in uh, in, in Burbank and and uh, I have very pleasant recollections of the decade or so that we worked closely together during the 90s and uh, you know they let me do a lot of interesting stuff I did a segment on Castellaro and all kinds of stuff with them and and uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, so cool. I'm, yeah, I'm going to try to reach out to them and give them a call, even if I could just have them on on the show. Uh, I feel like that would be huge for our podcast. I Me mean, having you. Uh, it is huge in and of itself because uh, we never expected that we would actually get anybody from the show on, you know, we were just talking about the segments and our insights into them, but we never actually thought we'd get people from the show um, on the podcast. So if we could get, you know, the more people we can get, kind of the more we live up to our podcast name, which is Uncovering Unsolved Business. You know, we're kind of digging in deeper sure. to the segments in the show. So, uh, you know, just having them on the show, I think, would drum up more interest. And, I mean, you know, we're yeah. we're just steadily growing more and more um, every week. So uh, so I, I really appreciate you talking. You know, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, uh, you said you don't have a computer. I was going to ask if you had an email address and I could send you the... Uh, no, I, I mean, I have a website. I have a website that you've seen, evidently, and I don't even I don't even operate my website. I have a guy that does that for me. Okay. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't even look at my own website. He puts stuff up on occasion that I, I give him to do. But... but um, uh, no, I don't. I don't. Among other things, I don't like the, the email. Is like doing everything with no control over the information, and I don't. I don't mind putting stuff on my website that's a finished product. I don't like to put work in progress uh, in any electronic format where anybody can look at it. That's true. And, uh, it's just so easy for when you're working homicide cases and organized crime cases and government corruption cases and all that kind of stuff, which I do. Um, I don't want to be uh, infiltrated, if you will, by people monitoring what I'm, how much progress I'm making. And any anybody who you know is a reasonably decent hacker could basically get into my system at any time, probably, and and do that. So I just decided a long time ago I was not going to be vulnerable to uh, uh, any kind of electronic snooping. And uh, um, so I just I just don't I don't use probably it probably smart given given the work that you've done and the things that you've experienced. <laughs> Well, I also, from a research point of view, it's not important to me. I mean, most of the work I do is is old-fashioned journalism. It's knocking on doors and talking to people, and it's primary research. And it doesn't involve it doesn't involve having to look to see what somebody has already written about it on the internet. So I'm not doing secondary work. I'm doing primary work, and it doesn't require internet at all. So um, yeah, I, I'm I'm perfectly happy uh, being a 19th century uh, kind of guy. Anyway, good luck with what you're doing, and if you have uh, any luck with Terry or John, let me know. Okay. And, uh, feel free to use my name and, and encourage him to talk to you. 
Is there anything that you'd like to plug as far as like a book or anything like that? I remember you were mentioning that book that you had, uh, I mean, is there anything you'd like to plug as far as where people could purchase it or anything that, you know, anything at all like that? Well, I mean, obviously you can go to, go to Amazon and probably get it. Uh, I have no idea. I mean, the book called, called uh, Mary's Mosaic by Peter okay. Danny. I'll definitely um, mention that on there. And I worked on a book called Oklahoma City uh, by Roger Charles and uh, Andrew Gumbel, just called Oklahoma City. It came out um, several years back. Uh, worked on that with Roger. Um, so you know, those are both you know, they're both, they're both also mentioned on my website at some point. But we just put the third edition of Mary's Mosaic out about a month ago, and it'll be the last edition. The third is the last edition, and it's probably going to end up as a film. It's been an option now for uh, a Hollywood film. Uh, hopefully that will happen at some point. Um, it's an interesting tale. It's uh, it's it's kind of a backstory to the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, it sounds very the same, interesting. Yeah. The same people obviously uh, were involved in the decision to kill her as it killed killed the president. Yeah. And uh, and that's very very clear. And we've made some headway in working on that case. So. Um, you know, it's uh, it's all been fun to do, but yeah, this is worth worth looking at. All right, uh, cool. Well, that sounds great. All right. Well, stay in touch. Be good. Thank you. Uh, thanks again. I you know I just greatly appreciate you. And unfortunately, I had to cut it off because that's where the old music cued in. But we just basically said goodbye to each other. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This one was awesome for me. I loved talking to Don. 